thank you, God, for how good you've been to us. God, we thank you for your sweet spirit here this morning. God, we're thankful, Lord, that you are a great God. We're thankful, God, that darkness does flee at your voice. God, we're thankful that we're serving the King that's never shaken. He's never worried, God. You're in control at all times. And, Lord, even when all seems like chaos, just as Isaiah in his day looked up, what did he see? There you were on your throne. God, this morning we're thankful to serve a living God. Thankful, God, for your spirit here. And, God, we just ask you continue in our hearts what you've started here this morning. Have your way, Lord. I pray, God, you'd be here with this uh, service, God. I pray, God, you'd be with the children's church this morning. God, that you'd anoint those that are going to be teaching the children. God, that your power would go with them. And, Lord, that uh, they would be used by you this morning to reach the hearts of those children. And, Lord, we pray, God, even now, Lord, for us as we open up your word and begin to look, God, at the path to the cross this morning, that, God, you would speak to us and, God, that you would encourage us and, God, you'd help us to refocus, God, if we need to refocus. God, we just pray for your will. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not typically make a six to eight week prediction. I want to leave room for the Lord if God leads a different way. But in my spirit, I feel uh, like I'm going to start something this morning that's going to take us a couple of months. Um, you don't have to turn there with me, but I want to read to you a passage the Apostle Paul Paul was a man that originally was a Pharisee. Paul knew the Old Testament as well as anybody. Um, he was a, a learned man. He was a man whose entire life was on fire for the Lord of God. Uh, for the Lord God, once he had the Damascus Road experience, Paul said this in Galatians six fourteen. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The gospel deals with the work that took place at the cross. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. In Jesus' life, He continued to talk about the hour. And I'll deal with that later today. But Jesus said to His mother when His mother came to Him in John chapter 2, and she said, they're out of wine. Would you turn water into wine in essence? And Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. There's times that the Bible said that uh, they tried to seize hands on Jesus and to, and to, to uh, arrest Him, but they could not because His hour had not yet come. In other words, Jesus' life, the 33 years that He lived here on earth, points to the hour. That's not to say that everything that led up to the hour was insignificant. That's not to say that all of His teachings are insignificant, for they are deeply significant. Every word that comes out of His mouth is life. But the reason that He came, the most important reason that Jesus came to this earth was for the hour. And that word hour does not specifically mean 60 minutes on the clock, but that one moment in time where He would die for all of mankind, where He would endure 
shame and suffering and endure the cross. If it weren't for the cross of Jesus Christ, we would have nothing. There would be no church. There would be no resurrection. There would be no new life. There would be no salvation. All of it hinges on the hour. And what I believe God has led me to do is to take us from Gethsemane to glory. To examine chronologically every event that took place that night. From the time He entered into the garden all the way up to the time that He he was crucified and breathed His last breath. And then on the very back tail of it, we will deal with the resurrection when He came to life three days later and came out of that tomb. But what I want to do is something I've never done, and that is look at every event, every conversation, every road, every person He stood in front of. The Gospels do not necessarily, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, which we are in today, does not necessarily record every event. Neither does Matthew, neither does Luke, neither does John. But what we are going to do is work through, and I'm going to do the best I can with God's help and by the grace of God, to use all four of the Gospels to help us piece together and get a picture in our own mind of what took place every step along the way from Gethsemane to glory. We're going to start this morning in Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, if you're there with me, we're going to read this morning through verses 32 from 32 to 53. And because I'm going to work through the text, I think what I'll do is just pray for God to be with us. I, I, I want to say this to those of you that, um, I guess I'll just say it to everybody. I would encourage you, if you really have a deep desire to really know the power and the passion of the cross, to really be able to see, you know, we know all the stories. Um, we know about Peter denying him. We know about the thief on the cross. We know about him praying, Father, not my will, but your will. But many of us uh, probably have never taken the time to look at the whole order of it chronologically and be able to see in our mind and in our heart the progression. And I would encourage you to know that because the hour is why He came, I'd encourage you to let ask God to help you receive this. Ask God to help you see it. Ask God to help you understand its application through the entire series Last thing I'll say before we get started. Through the entire series, I have three main things that I want our minds to be focused on at all times. I want us to see the humanity of Christ. I want us to see the deity of Christ. And I want to see the application to our own lives. We're going to examine those things. That's going to kind of be the theme as we work through all this. We'll see Jesus as a man. We'll see Him suffering and going through shame and pain and and, and hurt like we go through. At the same exact moment, we'll see His deity on full display. And we must always ask the question, what is the application to me? And when we're looking at the absolute most brutal, unfair, vicious and wicked slaughter of a person that has ever happened on earth, One who is totally innocent. At times we might ask ourselves, why 
Would Jesus endure such pain? Why would He go forward? Why would He not call the legions of angels? If you ever think that thought through this entire series as I'm preaching on the brutality of the cross and I'm drawing out the best I can the reality of what our Savior went through, if you ever ask the question, why would He do such a thing? Know this, the answer is always because of you. I pray this study will help us to focus on the cross. That like Paul, we can say, God forbid, that we boast in anything. Anything. Except the cross of Christ. Amen? Let's open with prayer. Lord, we're grateful for the ability to open up the Word of God. To study it. Lord, we acknowledge the need this morning, God, for You to have Your way and to to give our ears uh, the ability to hear, our hearts the ability to understand, our eyes the ability to see. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed with Your love for us. God, that we would be overwhelmed with the reality of the price that You paid. God, I pray this morning, God, we'd be encouraged, Lord, to realize that You took our infirmities upon Your own shoulders. You bore on Your shores what we could not on ours. God, You made a way when there was no way. Lord, I pray, God, that the cross would be lifted up and exalted, Lord. And God, that You would be lifted up and exalted. I pray this morning, if there be any here that need to be saved, that God, today they would see their need to be saved. God, that today they would run to You and find salvation in none other but You. God, I ask that You'd have Your way. We felt Your sweet Spirit. God, I pray that even now You would anoint me, God, to preach in the unction, in the power, in the demonstration of the Holy Ghost, not in man's wisdom, God, not out of my mind, God, not even out of my heart, but God, out of the power of the Holy Ghost of heaven, Lord. In Jesus' name, we ask it, we pray it, have your way. Amen. We pick it up in Mark, chapter 14, verse 32. Jesus has lived His life. Jesus has spent about three and a half years ministering. The multitudes have come. They have been healed. The multitudes have come and they have left. Jesus has, at this stage in time, already had Judas leave and go and get a, a group of uh, Roman soldiers to come and arrest Him. He had just had His last, last supper with His friends, His disciples. And the very hour for which He came was now upon Him. There's one thing that I want to mention before we get to verse 32. I told you I want to look at all the Gospels. In John chapter 18 and verse 1, it tells us that on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus had to cross the brook Kidron. It's interesting that John records that event in this story. First of all, the word brook typically denotes a stream that flows at all times. That the source of the water is in the earth. And because of that, the stream never stops flowing. Not through the winters, not through the summers, not through the fall, not through the spring. And the word kidron, it means murky. It means dusky. And while it is impossible to prove beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt, about 80% of theologians agree that the reason it was called the Brook Kidron was because the blood sacrifices that took place at the temple 
would run down the hill into this brook. And the brook would take the blood and all the, 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 the nastiness of the sacrifices. And when they would do sacrifices, it wasn't year-round, but when they would do sacrifices, that stream would be filled with blood. And you could see that stream flowing with the blood of the sacrifices of the Lamb. This preacher believes that. I agree with the 80% that think that's why it was called the Brook Kidron. And if that is the case, sacrifices had been taking place this week. The waters were murky. And Jesus, on His way to the Garden of Gethsemane, getting ready to enter His hour, would cross a bridge where underneath Him the waters would be flowing with the blood of sacrifices, symbolizing what He was getting ready to do. Putting within His mind, remember the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, 15 and 16 that Jesus was tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin. That we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our infirmities. In other words, He understands our emotions. He understands the temptations that we face. He triumphed over them, but He understood them. And as Jesus passed the brook Kidron, in his mind, he began to grapple with the reality that that blood would be his blood. That what he had waited 33 years for was finally here. That there wasn't a week away. It wasn't days away. Tonight would be the night when his disciples would forsake him, when he would be left all alone, when he would be falsely accused, when He would be condemned to die, and soon and very soon it would be His blood that would be dripping down that hill. There we pick up in verse 32. Then, after crossing the brook Kidron, they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. They go to the garden of Gethsemane. I suppose if there was a title to this message sermon series will be called From Gethsemane to Glory. But today would be part one, In the Garden. You see, it's significant that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. For it was in the Garden of Eden where the first Adam failed. It was in the Garden of Eden when the first Adam would give in to his temptations, would give in to his lusts, would give in to the pressures of the devil and the accusations of the enemy, and he would take of what God told him not to do, and Adam would say for the first time, My will, not yours. And there the fall took place. You see, it begins in Gethsemane. It all begins in Gethsemane. If you're ever going to experience the power of death and the power of resurrection through the name of Jesus Christ, you, my friends, will have to have a Gethsemane experience. You, my friends, will have to come to the place where you fall before God and you can say with an honest heart from the depths of your soul, God, I don't understand where it's all going to lead me. God, I don't know that it's going to be easy. God, I don't know exactly what's going to happen from this moment forward, but there's only one thing that matters from now on, and that is it's Your will be done, not my will. It started in the garden. And we're going to study today the garden, and we're going to see Jesus triumph victoriously through everything that happened to Him in the garden. We're going to see Jesus do what Adam could not. We're going to see where Adam failed, our Savior triumphed in the garden when His hour began. 
Jesus comes to the garden and He says, sit here to His disciples and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with Him. That is, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He left the others behind. And He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. I want you to notice this morning, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Listen to the preacher this morning when I tell you there's joy unspeakable through Jesus Christ. That God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of a sound mind of power and of love. But there are times that we will face when it feels like your soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us of our great high priest that he was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. And if Jesus' own heart was so sorrowful, He said, even unto death. Brothers and sisters, it's not always a sin to have sorrow and pain. It's not always a sin to wonder, God, how am I going to get through this thing? And Jesus went and He began to cry out, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. I want us to see the humanity of Jesus right now. I want you to see how difficult this was for Him. Look in John chapter 12. If you want to mark your Bibles, you can mark Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, Matthew chapter 26. And when I go back and forth, we'll be in the same story. But I want to show you something in John chapter 12. Verse 27. Jesus is talking to His disciples. And He says in verse 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He goes on to talk about how a grain of wheat, verse 24, falls to the ground and dies, but then it produces a crop. He tells us that he who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We see Jesus in John chapter 12. He hasn't made it to the garden yet. We see his soul beginning to get troubled thinking about the hour. But at this stage in Jesus' humanity, at this stage in, in time, Jesus at least has enough strength to say, what shall I say? It's a rhetorical question. Shall I ask God not to take, make me go through this hour? Of course not. It is for this hour I come. But I want you to notice in our text, Mark chapter 14, Jesus prays, if it were possible that the hour might pass from Him. Don't miss it. The Savior of the world, the spotless Lamb of God, 
the perfect man and the perfect God. Don't miss it. Say, God, if it's possible, don't make me go through this. In His humanity, He said, Lord, I don't know that I can bear this. And even the Savior prayed, God, if there's any way, I don't want to go through this. Can I tell you something about the Christian life? Sometimes we have to go through things we don't want to go through. It's not always easy. But what I can tell you this morning is that Jesus went through it too. And that when nobody else knows exactly the pain that you're going through and the frustration that you're going through, and nobody else knows how troubled your soul is and how passionately you're crying out, God, if there's any way that I don't have to go through this, if there's any way that this can be thwarted, if there's any other path, God, let it take place. Know this. Jesus knows where you've been, friend. Jesus knows where you've been. But He was committed to the Father's will. Why? For you. Because He loved you. And because He loved the Father. Jesus cried out, Lord, if there be any way, let this cup pass from Me. That the hour might pass. It's interesting that this is the hour that He had anticipated in His entire life. The book of John refers to this hour five times. In John chapter 2, 7, 8, 12, and 13. He had lived his whole life to get to this hour. That's why he came. And in the moment, what does he say? God, if it's possible, don't make me go through it. I want you to understand it wasn't just at the moment of the cross, but it was at the place in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus began to enter into that hour. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this. It's a passage that many of you know. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That word life in John chapter 15 is not the word life that we think of. It has nothing to do with the heartbeat. It has nothing to do with the the blood flowing through the blood vessels. It doesn't mean that a a man that would lay down his life and, and be shot or even be crucified for that matter. The word life is a word suke. It is where we get our word psychology from. It means the soul. And in the Bible, the word soul deals with three parts. The mind, the will, and the emotion. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his soul. His mind, His will, and His emotions for His friends. By the way, men, Galatians chapter 5 says that you ought to love your wife and give yourself for her the same way Christ loved the church and gave His life for her. That means we are to lay down our life, my mind, my will, my emotions for what is best for her. That's just a side note. But Jesus laid down in the Garden of Gethsemane His will for us. You know, there's a lot of men that are willing. Matter of fact, it kind of comes as instinct to a lot of men. Unless they're just wicked at the core. Most men would give their physical life for their family. They would give their physical life that they might uh, allow their wife to live or their children to live. But there's very few men that will honestly lay down their will, their emotions, what they think for another. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. 
where Jesus began to lay down His life for us is before He ever made it to the cross. It was there in the garden when He said, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. Verse 36, He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from me. Isn't that the way we pray sometimes? Appeal to God's uh, uh, ability to do anything? Appeal to God's ability to do what is impossible? But the Father had a plan and Jesus was willing to submit to it. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? I want you to notice something. He addresses Simon. Notice he had the three come, but he addresses Simon. You know why he addressed Simon? Because it was a matter of hours, literally hours before. When Jesus said that one of you will deny me, and Peter stands up in front of all of them and says, Lord, I would never deny you. I would die for you. I would die before I ever denied you. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, why are you sleeping? Could you not watch and pray for one hour? Peter claimed he'd give his own life for the Lord, but here he can't even give up an hour of his time because he's exhausted. Because he's tired. Can I say that's how we are? We're like Peter. A lot of times we're big talkers about what we would do, what we'd like to do, but when it comes down to it, we're weak. We fail. We make mistakes. Peter's going to fail miserably here in a little bit before we get done this morning. He's going to cut out his, bring out a sword, cut the ear off of somebody that's not even really an enemy of Christ, that's just there as a servant of the high priest doing what he's told to do. Jesus has to fix Peter's mistakes. But you know what? Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. And God chooses to use imperfect people. But it was, it was almost like it was Jesus' time to say, Peter, uh, just like four hours ago, didn't you tell me you die for me? Unto the death you'll be faithful. And yet you can't even watch and pray for one hour. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verse 43 and 45. Luke tells us that Jesus, in essence, was so weak from His praying that an angel appeared to Him from heaven, strengthening Him. That happened in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11 as well. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly than His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. He rose up from prayer and come to His disciples. And I want you to look at verse 45. He found them sleeping... From sorrow. Luke's the only one that records this. Jesus' disciples were so exhausted from the emotional week that they had had, from the travel that they'd had, that even in such an hour when they had been told that, that, that soon the Son of Man will be betrayed, they were so exhausted they couldn't stay up and pray. I'm trying to draw for you the picture of the difficulty that was taking place in the garden. Of the hour of the betrayal. Of all that led up to His death and His resurrection. 
His disciples are absolutely exhausted. They could not even watch and pray for one hour. Look at verse 38. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus now tells them the second time to watch and pray. I look at our Lord in this situation, and He brought His three closest friends with Him into the garden. He's the one getting ready to endure the cross. He's the one getting ready to be falsely arrested and falsely accused. He's the one getting ready to, to, to shed His blood. And His three closest friends are snoozing. Now, they're exhausted, but they're not more exhausted than Jesus. And we see Jesus in one of the biggest hours of need in His life. Again, doing it alone. Can I tell you something, friend? I'm being honest with you this morning. I'm trying to help you this morning. It's important to have good, solid Christian friends. It's important to have people who can pray for you. But you need to understand there will come times in your life when you feel absolutely exhausted and there is absolutely nobody you can look to but God. And by the way, don't get mad at your friends in that place because sometimes you're the one sleeping when they need prayer. Let us not deal too harshly with one another. Let us realize we're all the same. Let us realize that Peter is just like every one of us. But also let us know there will come times that are just like our Savior, you'll feel all alone. And you'll ask people to be there and you'll ask people to help and you'll find that when you go, they're sleeping in essence. Can I say it again? Jesus knows where you've been. Jesus knows what you're going through. He went through it so that He could identify with you. He went through it so that in that place when you're in your hour and your world is falling apart and your world seems tough and there's nobody that you can talk to and there's nobody that you can relate to and you feel like you're all alone, He went through it first so that you could come to Him and He could say honestly and truthfully from the depths of His soul, child, I know where you've been. I have been there before. Let me wrap you up in my arms and love on you through this thing and I'll walk you through it because I've done it once before. So Jesus says to His disciples a second time now, watch and pray. Brothers and sisters, there's two things we need to do. It's not just pray. Number one, we need to watch. You need to be mindful of what's going on. You need to be mindful of the enemy's attacks. You need to have an eye on what's taking place in your home, in your family, in your own life. You need to watch and then you need to pray. Now notice, lest you enter into temptation lest you enter into temptation. When we as God's people cease to watch and pray, we will enter into temptation. And Peter's going to enter into temptation here in just a couple minutes. And he's going to blow it big time. He's going to make a fool out of himself. The Lord's going to have to rebuke him in front of 600 Roman soldiers. That would be an embarrassing thing, wouldn't it, if you were Peter, the great apostle Peter and Jesus has to just rebuke you in front of 600 people? That'd be pretty embarrassing. That's what happens when you don't watch and pray. We enter into temptation and we get weak. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Look at verse 39. Again, in my Bible I have that word underlined. He went away and prayed. And then I have underlined this, and spoke the same words. 
There are some people who will tell you to pray for one thing once and never mention it again or you don't have faith in God. I will say as kindly as I can, they're wrong. That's not biblical. Jesus even taught, and I believe Luke chapter 17, Jesus taught uh, when He told us how to pray to look at the example of the woman who went to the, um, the, the, the judge and continued to plead the same thing. Release my son, release my son, release my son. Eventually, that Jesus said, He's telling a parable. It's not that God gets tired. But Jesus said the judge got tired and the judge said, give her a request. Jesus said then, likewise, you pray. Now, Jesus Himself is the one that told the disciples that when you ask something, believe that what you've asked for is done in heaven and you will receive it. We need to pray that way. We need to believe that God is answering our prayers and we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He hears our prayers. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus Himself ends up praying, this is the, this is the second time, He prays it three times. If the Lord God Himself the Son of Almighty God, who was without sin, prayed the exact same thing, the exact same way, three times in a row. Then we ought not let anybody make us feel uh, like we're not praying right when we pray for the same thing until we see God and, and get an answer from God. Jesus Himself did it. It also shows us how um, how difficult this was for the Lord. He wasn't satisfied with one time. We kind of see this theme in the Bible. The Apostle Paul said, I had this infirmity in the flesh. I sought the Lord three times. And finally God gave him his answer. My grace is sufficient. We see here Jesus prayed three times before finally it's done. And they come and arrest him. Can I also say that if our Lord had to go through some things that were so difficult for him, three times he goes to God and says, God, if there's any other way, Brothers and sisters, it's going to be that way for us sometimes. Don't give up on God in that place. Don't question God in that place. Sometimes we go through stuff. And it's not easy. We don't understand. And can I say that I'll sit here and I'll say that, and we know that, but we're just like Jesus. When the hour comes, when the hour comes and we're actually in that, it's difficult to deal with. You can know that it's coming your whole life just like the Lord knew. You can know that we go through difficulties. You can know that life's not always easy. You can know that people die. But it's not always easy when your loved ones die. You can know that bad things happen to good people. But it's not always easy when bad things happen to good people. But in that hour, we've got to follow the example of our Savior and say, God, as hard as it might be, as much as, as, as hard as it is on me, and my soul is sorrowful. Whatever your will is, God, that's all that matters. And I yield myself to you. And God, if it means I've got to pick up that cross and I've got to carry that thing up the hill and I've got to be crucified to it, that's what it means. Lord, whatever happens, let your will be done in my life, even if I have to do it alone, even if my disciples forsake me and leave me. If I've got to do it all by myself, God, I want to do your will. He went away. And he spoke the same words. He returned. He found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer. He came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Let us rise and be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want to move on now to verse 42. But before I do, I'm just trying to paint the picture. Can you picture with me in your mind the Savior in the garden? It's dark outside. He's praying by himself. The second time Luke records that he goes and prays so fervently and pleads with God so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood, big drops, it says, and they fell on the ground. His disciples are about a stone's throw away, one of the Gospels records. His disciples are off about 40 yards asleep. Jesus is by Himself seeking God. God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, Lord, if there's any other way. And at that moment, we pick it up where we are now. Verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want you to know that what Jesus meant there was not let us be going away, but let us go too. He didn't flee from the enemy, but he went and faced the enemy head on. Straight to them. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. I want you to, uh, uh, again, the picture. Mark tells us that there came a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. There's actually two pockets of people here. First of all, the, the ones that Mark mentioned are Jewish uh, religious leaders. But they did not have the authority to arrest. One of the other Gospels tells us that a cohort of men, almost which could be up to 600 Roman soldiers, came. And so you have two groups of people coming together. You have the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, if you will, the leaders of the, the uh, Jewish church of Jerusalem. You have them coming with the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers are the ones that have the authority to arrest Jesus. Quite an event. Can you imagine? We've got four men in the garden. That's how many. Jesus alone with God. Three of them are sleeping. And here comes... Somewhere close to between six and seven hundred men to get Jesus. A man who had never hurt anybody. A man who had committed no crimes. A man who had healed the sick. A man who had made the deaf hear. Who had given sight to the blind. He'd made the lame walk. He'd cast demons out of the demon possessed. He had done great things that people marveled. And here they come to arrest God. It is the night that man arrested God. And so, Jesus does not run from them, but He goes to where they are to meet them. In verse 44, as soon as He, that being Judas, had come, immediately He went up to Him and kissed and said to Him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed Him. We see the Lord betrayed with a kiss. An interesting thought. If indeed the sweat, Luke, Luke's the only one that records his sweat becoming like drops of blood. It's important to notice it doesn't say his sweat was drops of blood, though that's very possible. There is a medical condition in which that can take place. And I believe that that's probably what happened. To be clear on what the Bible says, 
It says his sweat was like drops of blood. You do that with what you will. This preacher believes that he did have that condition where stress became so intense that his blood vessels began to, some of them began to pop and actually sweat like blood came out. If that's the case, Judas come and kissed with his lips the face of the Lord Jesus and tasted on his own lips the blood that Jesus was getting ready to shed, the blood that he had betrayed. In John chapter 18, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John records an event that I believe takes place right after this kiss of betrayal. I believe it takes place between verse 45 and verse 46. John chapter 18, verses 4 through 6. So Judas betrays the Lord. Jesus is not surprised by this. We find out in John chapter 6 that Jesus said, one of you is a devil. And John chapter 6 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who He was that would betray Him. So Jesus was not surprised that Judas was the one. But nonetheless, He was betrayed by someone that He had been close to, by someone that He had invested His life into, by someone whom He had truly loved and shown compassion and mercy and patience with for three and a half years. John records something that's the only Gospel that records this. I believe it takes place right after the kiss. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon Him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Then they answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. They were being specific. They wanted to make sure they got the right Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am He. In your Bible, notice the word He is italicized. That means it's not really there. It was put in for our sake to better understand the text. But what Jesus actually said was, I am. It's the same name that when Moses said to God, who do you want me to tell the people sent me? God said for the first time it's ever recorded, tell them I am. It is the name of the eternal Creator God. The One who is above all things. Who was, who is, and who is to come. The great I Am who will always be the great I Am. Jesus' response when they said we see Jesus of Nazareth, He said, I Am. Now look at verse 6. Now when He said to them, I Am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I want you to get the picture in your head. They, all that were there, the soldiers, could you imagine being one of them? You know why I think they sent such a a huge group of men? This is what I personally believe, though the Bible doesn't record it, but it is the way of human nature. I think they were terrified. And when you're going to do something that you know is wrong, you're terrified to do it, about the only way you can muster up the courage to do it, you get a big group of other people that are all doing the same. Somehow hope to just be part of the crowd. Somehow hope to, to just like Pilate did, as we'll examine Pilate, wash your hands of it. It's, it's all they're doing. It's not my doing. I'm just here. I'm just part of it. I was just dragged into this. You can't really blame anybody if there's 700 of us, can you? Jesus said that word, I am. It's the only place that ever records something like this happening in the Bible. And all of them fell down. What a sight. Can you picture it in your mind? Judas betrays him with a kiss. Jesus steps forward and says, Who is it that you're seeking? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they say. He says, I am. And when He says that powerful word that, 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 that describes the great Creator, eternal God, I am, at that moment, all of them, they just fall down. Something happens supernatural. The power of God fell. doesn't tell us that the ground quaked. doesn't tell us anything shook. It just says they fell down. Can you imagine being one of them there? Not knowing exactly what happened? Somewhat thankful to look around and find out you're not the only one that fell down, that everybody is down. And yet they get back up. And they go on with their plan. But in that moment, when Jesus speaks the, the words of the eternal God, I am. And everybody that was there falls down and their strength leaves their legs. A foretaste of what Jesus said at one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. On that day, there will be no choice. Just as those men against their will, they just fell in the power of God, one day every knee will bow. There will be none that will stand strong in rebellion on that day against Almighty God. There will be none that will plead their case on why they did not serve Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we see in this moment of extreme anguish of Jesus praying and His sweat becoming like drops of blood and Him begging God if there's any other way. In that same moment, we see the power and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ when He proclaims unashamedly and boldly, I am. And every one of them falls down. We'll see this throughout all of... From, from, from Gethsemane to glory. We'll see this in Jesus. His humanity and yet His divinity perfectly entangled together. The perfect man and the perfect God. Back to our text in Mark chapter 14. Trying to hit every event chronologically together. Verse 46, Then they laid their hands on Him and took Him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. I want us now to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 and 54. Matthew's the only one that records the rebuke of Jesus towards Peter. Matthew 26, verse 52 through 54. I'll go ahead and read verse 51 for sake of the consistency of the story here. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus rebukes Peter. I want us to look at this event. They finally, Jesus says, I am somewhere. They had to be able to come back up to their feet. Probably those that were closest to the front of the line looked at each other. One of them gave the nod and they went to lay hands on Jesus. The Bible says that Peter reached out and cut the ear off of John's Gospel. John chapter 18 is the only Gospel that records this. Off of Malchus. John gives us the name of the man. 
We know that he is called in Mark and in John's Gospel, the servant, the servant of the high priest. I want us to stop and take a look at Peter's error. First of all, this kid is not a soldier. He is a servant of the high priest. He is not of the group of Roman soldiers. It may have been possible. I don't know why, unless maybe they were trying to convince the Roman army that they really were terrified something bad might happen. It might be possible he had some type of armor on. It might have been possible he had some type of sword. But out of all people that Peter attacked, the servant of the high priest was probably the worst of all choices. Not that any of them would have been good. And Jesus, in front of all of them, rebukes Peter. Why did Peter do such a thing? I mean, he spent three and a half years with the Lord. Church, I pray that you can hear me with what I'm about to say. I don't care how long you've been serving God. I don't care how much Bible you know. I don't care how much time you spent with Jesus in the past. We must continually, regularly, daily, as a way of life, learn to watch and pray and spend time with God lest you enter into temptation. I don't care how long you've been saved. A lot of people, they go through, they, they've been saved long enough, they start to just feel content. I'm a Christian. I know the Bible stories. And they quit being diligent, watching for the enemy. Watching for uh, that enemy that tries to creep up within. And they're not praying earnestly and seeking God for wisdom and direction. And just like Peter, they pull out the sword and end up hurting somebody. Jesus had warned Peter to watch and pray. But Peter doesn't listen to Jesus very often. Not when he disagrees with what the Lord has to say. There's no disciple that ever argued with Jesus like Peter. Peter always thought he had something to teach Jesus. And we see that here and elsewhere, Peter fails because of it. Can I say something about that point? I'm talking about the Apostle Peter. I'm talking about the man that Jesus looked in the eyes and said, You are Peter. And on this rock, the rock that Jesus would be, uh, that he would die and be resurrected three days later, the story of the gospel, Jesus said, On this rock, I will found the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he said to Peter, I give to you the keys. To the kingdom. That's who we're talking about. That, that man. The Apostle Peter. And after spending three and a half years with the Lord, Peter pulls out his sword in a fury, not knowing what to do. He's terrified. He's scared. See, that's what happens when you don't watch him pray. And he just hits the closest person to him. Just whoosh, whack. Cut somebody's ear off. Imagine how foolish that looked. I mean, this is one of Jesus' closest three disciples. I have a lot of points to make about this event, but one of them I want to make is that, listen, first of all, if the Apostle Peter could do it, so can we. Okay? Secondly, let's not deal so harshly with Peter, understanding we too can be weak just like him. And thirdly, 
Let us love those who, like Peter, have pulled out the sword on us. And let us understand God loves Peter. Jesus never gave up on Peter. The plan that God had for his life, God finished it. But in this moment, we see a colossal failure. We see a man who used the wrong weapon. We see a man who had the wrong motives. We see a man who's fighting the wrong enemy. This happens when we don't watch and pray. I also want to point out that Peter did hurt somebody. Guys, if we're not careful, we'll hurt people. Christians can and do hurt people. And most of them, just like Peter, think they're doing the Lord's work. I mean, they're doing God a favor. But they're not. You can rest assured of this. God's heart is never to hurt somebody. That's not God's heart. Jesus never once, in all of His ministry, in all of the attacks that He went through, you never see Him deal with the heart of trying to hurt somebody. Sometimes He said hard things. And the hard things that He said because they were true and people didn't want to listen to Him caused the people to leave sorrowful. We see that about the rich young ruler. But Jesus' intention was never to hurt somebody. Peter was trying to hurt somebody. And he thought in doing so that somehow, some way, he was doing God's work. We have to be careful not to be guilty of doing the same thing that Peter did. We have to be willing to, to look at ourselves and say, God, am I doing what I'm doing with a pure heart? God, am I doing what I'm doing because I want to help people? Or am I doing what I'm doing because I want to hurt people? Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying. Peter had been talking when he should have been listening. Peter had been boasting when he should have been fearing. And now he was fighting when he should have been surrendering. For all of his courage and all of his zeal, the Apostle Peter was totally unprepared for Satan's attacks. Courage and zeal are honorable things. But courage and zeal can do a lot of damage if they are not seasoned by a heart that is bathed in prayer and by a, by a soul and a spirit that is submissive to the will of God. He had a lot of courage. He had a lot of zeal. But he was unprepared for Satan's attacks. Mark chapter 14. Now, I want us to look now at Luke chapter 22. I want us to see the healing of this boy. Luke chapter 22. In verse 50, we see Luke records, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is the last thing that Jesus does before He's arrested. And what I just read to you is the last miracle 
It's the last miracle Jesus ever did before the cross. I think it's interesting that the last miracle that Jesus ever had to do before He went to the cross was fix something that Peter had did wrong. Was heal somebody that His own disciple had wounded. Isn't that interesting? There's several reasons I believe that Jesus healed him. I'll start with the least important and then move to the first, the most important. The least important reason that Jesus healed him, but it was important, was so that it could not be accused of him and his disciples of being you know, rebels that actually had some desire to create some uprising. So that they could not be accused of being hurtful people. Even though that's exactly what Peter did. The healing of the ear is so complete and so perfect that it is never once mentioned by any of Jesus' accusers in the trials that we will examine in the days to come. Nobody says... We went to arrest him and one of his disciples cut the ear off of the servants of the high priest. It's never even mentioned. Jesus' healing had to be so complete and so perfect. I think to myself several things about that event. Could you imagine being one of the soldiers close by, one of the people close by that actually saw the event? Peter reaches out and goes with the sword. An ear falls to the ground. There's blood all over the man's hands and He's probably screaming in pain. Jesus reaches over quickly and does whatever He does. We don't know exactly how it worked or what it looked like. And all of a sudden, He's not screaming. There is no more blood. He's completely healed. Could you imagine the men standing there? Would you want to go forward with the arrest? Imagine of the one that was healed. Imagine the compassion that came from the eyes of the Savior towards Him. It's an amazing moment. An absolutely amazing moment. About the other, only other thing I can liken it to is when Jesus prayed for those two that were, uh, the, those that were crucifying. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's about the only thing I can really liken it to. Jesus is exhausted. Jesus has prayed through the night. They've come to arrest Him. And he still has time to stop in the middle of it. And he still cares and has compassion in the middle of all of it. To look at one that needed touched, that needed healed, and reach down and heal him. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus knows where you're at? And that sometimes in the middle of chaos, and in the middle of 700 other people being there, and, and, and the situation is tense and the situation is, 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 is extreme and, and there's an elaborate plan that's going on and, and you seem like you're insignificant, you're not part of it whatsoever. You're just a servant of the high priest trying to do what you're ordered to do. But in that moment and in that place, Jesus stops and He looks you in the eyes and He wants you to know, I love you. In that moment, Jesus showed the Roman soldiers. He showed the, everybody. There's a reason that it happened, not to one of the soldiers, but that it happened to one of the servants of the high priest. See, Jesus was correcting everybody in this moment. 
He was correcting his disciples. He was correcting the high priests who were accusing him of being ungodly and, and seeking to have him crucified. And he's correcting the Roman soldiers who are there to arrest him when he shows compassion and love and mercy despite what everybody else is doing. Jesus, by himself, is extending a hand to heal and to touch. Can I tell you something this morning? If you've ever been wounded by God's people, and by the way, Peter is God's man. Peter's God's man. Was God's man. Was still God's man then. Was still God's man when he, would, when he had failed and when he denied the Lord. And we'll look at that probably next week. He, he was still God's man. And he was still God's man after it was all said and done. He got in the flesh. He didn't watch and pray. He failed in that place of temptation. And in doing so, he hurt somebody. But listen to the preacher this morning. If you've ever been hurt, by one of God's people. I want you to understand. Listen to me as carefully as you ever can. Jesus loves you. And God didn't mean for it to happen that way. And whatever you do, don't let your view of God become based upon because somebody failed. And somebody did you wrong. And know that no matter how bad you've been hurt, no matter how much you're bleeding, God has the ability to touch you and heal you. And He desires to. If we'll get our eyes off of people, and we'll get our eyes off of the soldiers, and we'll get our eyes off of the, the, the Jewish uh, scribes and Pharisees, and we'll get our eyes off of the failures of the disciples, and we'll just look to Jesus and say, God, it's about you, and it's about you only. He'll meet you in that place and He will touch you and He will heal you. So Jesus rebukes Peter. He reaches out and heals Malchus. Malchus. Jesus was practicing what He preached to others in Matthew chapter 5. Remember Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those that spitefully use you and persecute you. He was practicing what He preached. He was giving us an example of what love and forgiveness really looked like. To the soldiers that would crucify Him, to the thief on the cross, to this young boy, Jesus, who His last dying breath was showing compassion. And finally today, we end. Jesus says in verse 48, have you come out as a, against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook Him and fled. They all being His disciples. They forsook Him and they fled. Now a certain young man following Him had a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him. He left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. In Luke chapter 22, verse 54, it says they arrested him. They arrested him. That night in the garden, man arrested God. What a thought. A man who had did nothing wrong, a man who had committed no crimes, a man who had never hurt a single person, and they arrested God. Before we deal with them too harshly, can we be honest and say a lot of times we try to put God on trial too? 
We get angry with God. God didn't do what we thought God should do. And God didn't work it out the way we thought it should work out. These Pharisees were angry with God. The, way, the reason so many people are angry with God. You ask the question, why did they go to arrest Him? Why, why did they go after Him? Because they hated what He preached. A lot of people love to hear the Word of God taught. They love to hear the Word of God expounded on. They love to hear the preacher open it up and read it and, 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 and talk about what it means to other people. But when the Word of God turns internal and it comes with you, you are a sinner. You are a fornicator. You are destined to hell. You are a liar. You are the one that is wrong. When all of a sudden the Word of God begins to deal with you, rage comes up. When the Word of God is turned on my family, and my family's the one that is not being truthful before God. And my family's the one that the Word of God is convicting. All of a sudden, we become angry and we hate the Word of God. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees. This is what happened with the people of that day. And I'm telling you, it's the reality of what happens so much in our culture. People love to hear the Word of God taught on as long as they deal with their sins. As long as it doesn't come directly to where you're living and point out the reality that you need to repent and that you're not right with God and that you need to give your heart to God and get honest about God, repent of your sins and follow Jesus Christ and quit just giving lip service and telling people you love Him one day and then living your life where, it act, where, where your life has no indication that you love God whatsoever. That message makes people angry. And they didn't like the Word of God when the Word of God dealt with them. And so they went and they arrested Him that night. Let us not be guilty of ever trying to do the same thing with God. His ways are higher than our ways. He doesn't always have to work the way that we think He should work. He knows what's best. Brothers and sisters, there comes a time... We've just got to stand on the Word of God and say God's ways are higher than our ways. God is pure. God is true. God is holy. His mercy endures forever. His love endures forever. All that He does is good. God is love. Therefore, I don't understand all that I'm going through. I might not understand why things work the way they work, but I know this one thing. In all of it, God is still good. God is still just. And I will not deny Him. And I'm not going to put Him on trial. And I'm not going to arrest Him. Amen? I ask our worship team to come. Father, I pray that You'd move all across this room. God, as I was putting together this sermon and, and, and going through it, I understood there wasn't any direct point, God. But Father, we can't go wrong when we preach and, and examine the hour, the reason that the Savior come. And Lord, I pray this morning, while I've, I've touched on a lot of different things, I pray that Your Word right now would go forth and begin to produce fruit in people's hearts. I pray if there be any lost here this morning, that God they begin to see what you went through so that you could save them. God, help them to see that what your son was enduring was what they are supposed to endure is what they would have had to have gone through and, and that he went through it for them. And God, this morning, I pray they'd look to you for, in faith, God, and find salvation in none other but you. I pray that you'd encourage the child of God this morning. Encourage them to know that no matter what they're going through, you know you've been there. You've tasted of it. You've endured it. God, I pray, Father, that we'd be overwhelmed, God, at the same time with how much You loved us. Why would You go through such a thing? Why would You allow Yourself to be arrested? Why would You allow Yourself to, 
to, to endure such shame and such humiliation because you loved us and you wanted a relationship with us. God, I pray that you move all across this room this morning. I pray, God, that you move on hearts. God, that you draw us to you. I did my best to, to lift up your son this morning. Now would you draw people to yourself. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Sin has raised its head once again. And I did not stand in the power that you've given created me a clean heart O oh God and renew a right spirit within me for you alone can fully redeem you alone can live choices I've made and this is where his blood 
covers every one of my mistakes. Where brokenness meets healing and guilt is overwhelmed by the truth that God's love can reach beyond where I can fail. This is my broken spirit. This is my contrite heart. This is all my shame being poured out before the cross. This is where mercy abounds. This is where I am set free. This is where forgiveness is poured. 